Friday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Glad to have you with us. I am back. Big thanks to Todd Mickelson, who filled in for me yesterday as I was taking some time off. But we got a busy show in front of us today. Coming up, we are going to be joined by Kevin Featherly of Minnesota Lawyer, as there are a couple of legal cases working their way through the Minnesota court systems that uh, have me interested. Now, a few of them have to do with politics, but there's another one that I think you're going to find interesting as well. And it has to do with a custody dispute over a pet. In fact, a case with a dog named Oliver and a custody dispute has made its way all the way to the state Supreme Court. It's a really fascinating case, and we'll be talking about that with Kevin and more coming up in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to talk about access to affordable health care and health insurance. A study was recently commissioned by the University of Minnesota that gave us some really interesting information on what areas of the state are having the hardest time giving folks access to affordable health care and health insurance. And by the way, it doesn't follow along the traditional political lines of red areas and blue areas. So we're going to talk about that right now with an interview I conducted just a while back. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So when it comes to the percentage of residents enrolled in health insurance, Minnesota is fifth best in the nation, which on the surface is a pretty good number. But when you dig in a little bit further, the numbers aren't quite so promising. Because within Minnesota, many people don't realize that there are many areas in the state with low rates of health coverage that rival the worst states in the nation. They're so-called health care deserts. So joining us to talk about some of these health care deserts and what we can do to give people access to affordable health insurance is Megan Kimmel from the nonprofit Portical Health Net, which is a nonprofit focused on expanding access to health coverage as she joins us now. Hey, Megan, how are you doing today? Good morning. Thank you, Brett. So before we start diving into things, can you define what exactly a healthcare desert is? Sure. And I'll actually use the term health coverage desert even more than healthcare desert, because many of these communities do have access to healthcare with excellent providers, but they're communities that have very, very low numbers of people who are insured. So high rates of uninsurance. So these are communities within our state where the number of people who have insurance and therefore have confidence in how they're going to pay for the health care that they need is, is very low. Gotcha. So that makes some sense. And I think this is something that's often forgotten about when we talk about the whole health care and health insurance debate is that, yeah, there are a lot of people who don't have access to health insurance, which is very, very key to being able to get the health care that they actually need when they run into an emergency situation or even for routine procedures. If you don't have health insurance, obviously, bills can pile up very, very quickly. Absolutely. And what we see with many of the clients we work with is the fear of what those bills will be and what the financial implications of those bills will be prevents people from seeking primary and preventive care because they're afraid. And what happens often then is that medical conditions either become so large um, that in addition to being very unhealthy for the um, 
patient, it becomes very expensive to treat. Or uh, because they lack insurance, they seek care in the emergency room for conditions that are much better treated in a primary care setting, both because it's a, it's a better way to receive the care and, and build an ongoing relationship with a care provider. And also it's much less expensive for the entire healthcare ecosystem to have people treated in primary clinics rather than the emergency room. So this map that was recently released, which shows some of these deserts that exist around Minnesota, it's really striking because at least in terms of politics, it doesn't follow the typical red versus blue politics where, for instance, it's only red areas that are experiencing these deserts or only blue areas. It's really interesting if you look at this as it's pretty much urban areas, which of course are typically very democratic, and very rural areas, which are very Republican which is kind of interesting to look at when we have this debate about access to affordable health insurance, at least where people are struggling the most, it appears not to follow traditional political lines, which I don't know, as I was observing this, Megan, that that was really interesting to me is that it it appears this shouldn't be much of a partisan issue. I agree completely, Brett. I think that access to health coverage and issues around the rates of uninsured are not party line specific at all. Um, again, with the clients we see, we see people from all geographic areas, from all walks of life, from all um, uh, uh, employment industries who struggle with access to health insurance. So then the question comes, how do you actually get action on this through either lawmakers or maybe even the private sector to try to improve the situation when you have kind of this odd coalition of, to me, what looks like people who live in urban core centers and then those that live in very rural areas. Those are kind of strange bedfellows when it comes to politics. But if you get those groups working together, perhaps we can improve the situation. So what do we need to do to try to bring this sort of coalition together so we can improve access to affordable health insurance? Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that there is an issue. And that's why I so appreciate that we're having this conversation today. And I so appreciate the work that was done by the University of Minnesota through the State Health Access Data Assistance Center, which is a mouthful. Um, SHADAC is what they go by. And this is the group that um, put together the map that you referenced that put together a database that allows us um, as a community to look at by zip code and by legislative district, what are the rates of uninsured and also dig even deeper into who are the populations that remain uninsured. And that's really key for groups like Portico. Um, And I'll come back to that. I, I think the first thing that needs to be done is we have to have a conversation about it. It's really easy as a state to say, as you mentioned, we're the fifth best in the country, and isn't this wonderful? Um, and we've been leaders on this issue for a long time, and that is true. Um, but it's too easy then to gloss over the facts, fact that um, both based on geographic and also based on, um, on racial breakdown, that's not the full story. So I think the first thing that needs to happen is we need to have these kind of conversations. And I'd like to see these conversations happening um, among policymakers um, much more actively and in a way that really engages the communities that are most impacted by that. Um, things that I think need to be done um, to change this situation, the, one of the biggest is funding. Um, the way that people learn about 
their options around health insurance, that they understand how to apply for it, that they understand what sort of financial um, help is available to them. Um, that doesn't just magically happen. That happens because there are organizations throughout the state, most of them being nonprofit organizations that are actively working in the communities in which they're located, um, actively connecting and um, educating people about what's available and then walking them through the process. And I want to stress the process is not a simple one um, and it's not a one-stop shop model for most people that are applying. It involves following up with verifications and following up with the county. Um, so committing funds to that work is really important. Minnesota has been very supportive of the work of assisters, navigators, um, healthcare navigators, by through Minter, through having navigator grants. And at the time, um, these last couple of years where the federal government has been cutting funding for navigators that work with the federal health insurance exchange, Minnesota has not done that. Minnesota has a state-based exchange that is Minsure and has remained committed to supplying funds, but it's not enough and it needs to grow. Um, so I think that's the first thing. You had mentioned, um, <clears throat> excuse me, others in the healthcare space, and, and I agree with that completely. Um, clinics, particularly federally qualified health centers, are very, very impacted by high, the populations that have high rates of uninsured. Um, health systems that have emergency rooms, particularly those located in some of these health coverage deserts, these folks are really impacted by high rates of uninsured. So finding ways that policymakers and healthcare providers and those that are on the front lines helping people get insured, and in many cases, consumers who are struggling to navigate the system, bringing people together, um, to the same table to have conversations about this from their different perspectives feels like a very, very important next step. And that is why, again, going back to this data, I think is so valuable that we have this as a starting place because it gives us something to begin looking at. I'd like to share with you a little about how Portico has used this data. I had mentioned that the data allows us to drill down and it really gets allows us to look into in let's take a zip code in one of the excuse me health coverage deserts and see who are the folks that remain uninsured what is their primary language what are the um, employment sectors that they live in uh, what is their family income so we can think about what health um, program be it uh, medicaid or a qualified health plan that they buy on their own all of those things impact how we message to them how we connect with them how we reach them um, and i think that's a really important step for finding a solution expanding on something you said a little while ago talking about how well people oftentimes have trouble trying to navigate the system when it comes to accessing affordable health care and health insurance uh, the data from the University of Minnesota also indicated that 83% of Minnesotans without health insurance have incomes that actually make them eligible for financial assistance. So is this a case, again, where people are just having trouble navigating the system and not taking advantage of some of these benefits that they might be eligible for? Talk about that a little bit. I think it's a combination of things. What we see from clients um, is in many cases, people don't know that they're eligible for these benefits. We see that particularly people that fall within the income that um, range that would allow them to get tax credits for purchasing 
a plan through our state-based exchange, Minsure. Um, many people who believe that their income is too high to qualify for benefits, yet feel that they cannot afford health insurance. Health insurance can be expensive, particularly on the individual market. And that's why the tax credits are so valuable. And Minsure is the only way that you can get those tax credits. We talk to many clients who just don't realize that that's an option for them. So that's one part of it. Um, we see a lot of people who just don't understand how to really navigate through the system. It's confusing. Um, the application um, asks for questions about your income and often questions about what your projected income will be. Many people are not sure how to how to calculate that. They're not sure what the rules are. The um, household makeup of of a um, applicant is a big factor in what people are eligible for. And so particularly families that may have a slightly non-traditional model of who lives together um, can really struggle to figure out how do they report their household size and link that to their tax status and link that to their, their household income. Um, so those are factors that contribute. We also see a lot of people who are able to take the first step toward insurance by doing the application, but struggle to follow up on some of the subsequent things that have to happen. It's not unusual that an applicant is asked to provide additional verifications of income. Um, and the process for supplying those, getting those to the right processing organization, such as their county, can be challenging for people, particularly people um, who have language barriers. Um, often the, the letters that they receive from say their county um, are written in a little bit of a legalese that can be challenging for someone who isn't uh, somebody who is a native English speaker, but especially somebody who's not a native English speaker. And I have to imagine the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly impacted things and, well, made the process a lot more difficult. Uh, I'm sure you agree with that, that COVID has certainly not helped things at all over the past year or so. Not at all. And when we talk about this data that we see from Shadak, um, it's important to note that this data predates the pandemic. So I'm especially worried about what we are going to see in the months and the years ahead as the pandemic um, implications become more clear. Um, what we have seen among clients are uh, particularly complicated around the um, issue of income, particularly with unemployment benefits. That changes how people report their income and changes how people um, determine what or we help people determine what they're eligible for. And so that has been a challenge. In addition, we've seen a lot of people who for the first time in their life are finding themselves without employer-sponsored insurance. And the process of um, accessing insurance on your own, either through Medicaid or Minnesota Care or through purchasing on the individual market through Minsure is very different than the process that one goes through when they're selecting their health insurance through their employer-sponsored plan. So the learning curve for many of the clients that we're seeing who are have become uninsured through the pandemic, it's very steep and it's, an, it's a new process. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of, yeah, people who might have just been getting their health insurance from their employer and all of a sudden they're laid off, don't have a job anymore. And yeah, you go to that individual market. I know firsthand that it can be very intimidating to go on there. That's where I originally purchased my health insurance a few years ago. And for the first time, uh, yeah, that was very intimidating uh, to try to navigate the entire system, 
realize what you're eligible for. So, yeah, certainly having any ways that people can be helped in that aspect is a very positive thing. Absolutely. And especially right now when somebody, this pandemic is causing tremendous stress for families and individuals. And when somebody is already experiencing the stress of a lost job, of children at school trying to distance learn, um, often the uh, additional stress of trying to navigate an unfamiliar system is just too much. And it can be enough to make people step back and say, I'm just going to take my chances. And that's where um, a group like Portico or the many other navigator organizations that are throughout the state can become so valuable um, because we do know how to work through it. And so that allows other people to to take a breath and say, okay, there's someone here to help me with this unfamiliar process. Final question for you here, Megan. Where can people see this data and learn more about your organization as well? Well, um, our organization is called Portico HealthNet. We're based in St. Paul, but we serve people throughout uh, the state of Minnesota. Um, because of the pandemic, we're meeting exclusively over the phone with clients, um, which makes it real easy for people during this time. Our website is www.porticohealthnet, P-O-R-T-I-C-O-H-E-A-L-T-H-N-E-T.org. Um, that is where you can access our information. The data is available through the University of Minnesota's State Health Access Data Assistance Center, otherwise known as SHADAC, S-H-A-D-A-C. And the data is available on their website, um, which is actually just confirming um, what their, I'm sorry, I didn't have this up, but their uh, website is um, shadac s h a d a c dot org. Oh, there you yeah. go, coming through in the clutch and getting that website just. Oh my goodness, that's, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's, all, that's all right. Putting you on the spot with that one. <laughs> Hey, that's Megan Kimmel. She is from the nonprofit Portical Health Net, which is a nonprofit focused on expanding access to health coverage. As we were talking about this recent survey that was put out by the University of Minnesota, that's talking about uh, these health coverage deserts where people are having trouble, well, accessing affordable health insurance and affordable health care, uh, talking through what some of the solutions for are and, well, what lawmakers can do as well to try to improve access to affordable health care. Uh, Megan, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Brett. Take care. And stick around. We'll come on back and have more on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So there's a number of legal proceedings that I've been following along over the past few weeks that have to do with the Supreme Court and some other uh, cases that have been debated around Minnesota. So figure, got to bring in our expert on some of these court cases. He is the Capitol reporter for a Minnesota lawyer. Uh, that is Kevin Featherly, who joins us now on the show. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing today? I've been promoted. I have to go to my bosses. I'm an expert now. They're, they're, they're going to have to give me a raise. Uh, unfortunately, I kind of throw that term around a lot, so don't put a lot of stock in what I'm saying with that. <laughs> if you're on my show, I pretty much call you an expert, so there you go. I, I carry no weight behind that term. <laughs> All right, so there are a number of cases. I'll take it I'm, as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. 
towards the end of the interview, I really want to touch on this property case that has to do with a custody dispute, so to speak, over cats and dogs. It actually could set some pretty important precedents in case law in Minnesota. We'll touch on that a little bit later. But first, we've got to talk about a couple of big political cases. And we'll go to Wabasha County, where... Well, if you're listening right now, you've probably heard about this in the news after Governor Tim Walz issued his executive order that paused all sorts of businesses around the state for a one-month period. There was a gym in the Wabasha area called Plainview Wellness Center that decided, well, this economic impact is going to be too negative on us. We've put in all sorts of precautions to make sure people stay safe, and we are going to defy the governor's executive order and remain open, despite the fact that the governor says you have to close down. So it sounds like, Kevin, we do have a ruling uh, from the court system on this. Uh, tell us a little bit about this case and how the court ruled. Well, it's not a, it's not a final ruling. But uh, what Keith Ellison's office did was sort of make two requests. It's, it filed a lawsuit. The main suit is still live. Mm. The, and, and he also asked for a temporary restraining order or a temporary injunction. The, what the judge issued today was a temporary injunction that tells the, the gym owner he must close. Gotcha. Uh, he had remained open, um, but he must close now, at least until December 18th, when the four-week um, shutdown order for public com- accommodations ends. Uh, if, however, the governor extends that, which he sort of hinted that he might well do, uh, this closure could go on longer. Um, but then the case remains live. He still faces a $25,000 poor violation fine, um, you know, just as the, as the main case goes forward, because all this really does is freeze things in place while they sort out the legal issues. So I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought the Supreme Court basically have ruled on Governor Walz's executive orders on the past and said they were legal and they've granted him, well, exactly the type of powers that it seems like the state constitution says he can do with these executive orders, but yet we're getting more court challenges with this. So kind of explain the disconnect to me, because I thought the courts had largely already ruled in favor of Governor Walz and his emergency powers. I'm not uh, familiar with a Supreme Court ruling Hmm. on that matter, but I am familiar with a ruling that just came down um, on November 24th, very similar ruling in a case called the Shady's uh, Restaurant case, in which that was also a a lawsuit that the Attorney General uh, filed against a restaurant chain, a small restaurant chain based in Albany, Minnesota. And that ruling finally came down, and uh, the judge out there, uh, Judge Chan, I believe his name is, um, ruled in favor of the attorney general and said, and the governor, for that matter, saying that what the governor did was within his authority. He did not violate the Constitution, that, uh, you know, equal protections and all these other constitutional issues were not violated and that the governor acted, you know, within his mandate and that the, the order was legal. Um, this effectively says the same thing, although this, again, is just a temporary injunction. The, the case is still to be heard in full, but you know, it's certainly not a good sign for the gym owner if he hopes to prevail ultimately. So one of the key quotes you highlighted as I was following you along on Twitter was uh, from the case, uh, quote, if courts across Minnesota were to unravel the executive order by giving it no legal effect, it may lead to further COVID-19 outbreaks. That was in oral arguments yesterday. Defense counsel called the order unconstitutional and said the client took steps to protect customers. So getting a look at some of the arguments we've been hearing from both sides in this. So talk a little bit about that, about uh, what both sides were saying. Uh, 
those, of course, that were supporting Governor uh, Tim Walls and, of course, Keith Ellison, and also uh, the defense in this case who was saying, oh, no, this executive order shouldn't apply and this gym should remain to remain open. I believe you're actually quoting from today's ruling. That's what the judge said. If the court were to, across Minnesota were to allow individuals the freedom to essentially make a choice, then that could very well lead to more COVID-19 outbreaks. And that is what the AG was arguing yesterday. Um, th- on the other side, uh, uh, an attorney, his name is Falander. Forgive me, I've forgotten his first name. I should look that up. But he's a uh, 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 Falander. I'm sorry. I know that's his Oh, Vincent Falander. Falander. He argued that, look, this guy has taken all the steps you can possibly take. He, and apparently this is legit. Uh, the, the gym owner um, required social distancing. He had regular sanitization of his equipment. Um, the gym facility was never really crowded. I think he's got like 200 members. They have access to the gym uh, through private key fob. They can go in anytime they want. It's open 24-7. Um, and he says that there's never been a point in time when more than 15 people had congregated in that gym facility at one time. So uh, what Fonlander is arguing for his client is that, look, he's taken all the steps. He's even encouraging the use of masks and is willing to make that mandatory. Um, uh, extending his argument, he's saying that what the governor is doing is unconstitutional, and this is very much along the same lines as uh, the argument made in the Shady's case, in in Feinlander's case, he's saying that because there's this twenty five thousand dollar per um, uh, violation fine, effectively the governor has created out of whole cloth his own criminal penalty, without the legislature even weighing in on the matter, and he thinks that that's going beyond his authority. But you know, the judge is looking at the uh, the emergency. Um, uh, is it the Emergency Management Act? The act that uh, the, the statute under which the governor has this executive emergency power authority, and he sees that what the governor's doing is well within the bounds of what the legislature has signed off on. So that's it. Those are, those are the two sides. And it's interesting because this is there is, appears to be a lot more gray area than the case I was thinking about that I have think was like last spring where we had a couple of bars in the St. Cloud area that basically said, we're not going to obey the governor's orders because, well, we want freedom and so on and so on, where this guy's making kind of a much different argument. And I'm sympathetic to it where he's saying, I've taken all the proper precautions. I've sanitized the equipment. I'm willing to implement a mask mandate. We're not having mass gatherings. So it's certainly more complicated, it sounds like, than what we saw earlier this year when we had a couple of bars that just said, "Eh, I flat out don't want to listen to Governor Walls because I'm not going to listen to him. <laughs> well, uh, it kind of goes both ways. That you're, you are referring to the shady case, by the way. That that is the case. That is the ruling that came down on November 24th. Oh, gotcha. um, okay. And, and you are correct in, in what you're saying in the way you're characterizing the Plainview Wellness Center case. However, um, the guy was also pretty adamant when he was contacted directly by the attorney general's, uh, the assistant attorney general, the investigator in the case. Um, he said, the quote is, I'm sick of this F dot, 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 ing, bull, dot, dot, dot. And he said that um, uh, when the, it says the attorney general offered to explain that the health department numbers, you know, linking confirmed COVID-19 cases to fitness centers is real. He said that your numbers are nothing but F dot, 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 corrupt. 
And he also uh, said that it's America and he's going to remain open. Um, when they said that he, they'll, you know, contact him later, uh, if he continues to violate, he said, perfect, uh, be in touch with me because I will not comply. So, oh, yeah, yes. I mean, it kind of goes both ways. But, you know, I talked to uh, Attorney General Ellison today and asked him about that. You know, is this is this a punishment for for that kind of rhetoric? And he said it's not. This is about keeping people alive. From his point of view, that's what this is. The, the executive orders are about. And that's what his lawsuit is about. It's about not only protecting you know, it's about protecting this this gym owner, but also his customers. You know, they even if there has not been the COVID-19 case that has come out of that gym, it doesn't mean that one won't. And it also, you know, you can't control what people do when they either enter or leave. It, it, it's just you can't, you know, this is one of the things that business owners say over and over, you know, that we we are taking care. We're making sure. But, you know, the nature of exercise is that you will, uh, you know, your respiration will increase. You'll breathe harder. You'll breathe more frequently you'll expel more aerosolized particle particulates into the air. And, you know, the, the evidence that the governor thinks he has on his side weighs in favor of closing down those businesses. And the judge agreed. That's, I'm glad we bring you on the show here to break down some of these cases where you might just see an excerpt of it in the newspaper or something where you can, yeah, definitely give us more detail on this. Uh, Kevin Featherly. It's always more complicated than it appears, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, most certainly, yeah. Now that you've yeah, brought up a couple of points here. Hey, it's Kevin Featherly. He is the Capitol reporter for our Minnesota lawyer. A couple more stories I want to hit up with you here, Kevin. Well, you had a chance oh, yeah. to do a recent Q&A session with a new state Supreme Court Justice, Gordon Moore. Now, it sounds like yeah. his appointment was a little bit of a surprise to not just people in the political world, but even to Moore himself that he was appointed a Supreme yeah. Court justice. <laughs> so it seems, he, I asked him about that, you know, because, you know, the Capitol Press Corps, the folks I talked to, you know, we had thought it was going to be one of the other candidates. You know, we had a Latinx candidate. Uh, we had a female candidate. Uh, we had a guy who was a long-term um, member of the Attorney General's Staff, real experience, but the Gordon Moore has significant experience. He's he was a longtime Nobles County attorney, and even longer served on the bench in, in that county on, on the district court. Um, nonetheless, he calls himself he called himself the dark horse candidate. He said that he was really surprised to get the call. We sort of thought that there must have been some sort of a political alliance because he has a relationship. He comes from the governor's home district from his old congressional days. Um, and so we thought, well, there must be some kind of political alliance. I asked him about that. And he said that that would be an unfair characterization. He knew the governor. He was an early supporter. But once he became county attorney, he pretty much dropped his partisan political activities altogether. And that would be from 2003 onward. Um, and so, you know, his, the closest involvement he said that he had with the governor is that uh, the governor raced him in a foot race during some kind of a turkey festival. And he said that he, he's really glad he let, it, to let the governor win. <laughs> I love that. So uh, there's another aspect to this as well that I find really interesting is that apparently to become a Supreme Court justice, I'm not sure if this is true of any every governor, but you have to write a judicial essay. 
And yeah. to me, that sounds very kind of high schoolish, but I also appreciate that as well. That, you know, if you're going to be on the highest court in the state of Minnesota, you should at least have to write some sort of essay so we can kind of figure out where you stand in terms of how you might rule on cases or what your judicial philosophy might be. So, yeah, I found that super interesting that, well, if you want to be on the state Supreme Court, you got to write a judicial essay. So, talk a little bit about yeah, what was in this essay because it sounds like he's a big freedom of the press kind of guy, which is certainly some good news. Well, he chose, uh, by the way, yes, you're tr- that's true. And, of course, Governor Walls is a high school teacher, so I think there's a oh, nexus there. there. <laughs> this is unique to Governor Walls. I don't know that this has been a requirement. I think it's also something he requires of um, Court of Appeals candidates, possibly all candidates. I'm not certain of that. But I know that the, the Supreme Court candidates, and I believe the Court of yeah, the Court of Appeals definitely because Susan Siegel <laughs> said that when she learned that she was going to have to do this, she's now the chief judge of the Court of Appeals. Uh, she let out a few choice expletives, but anyway, in uh, Moore's case, he chose the famous uh, and dear to all journalists' heart, Near versus Minnesota case from the 1930s, and that was a was probably the first and still the pivotal landmark First Amendment case involving a really unsavory character named Jane Neer, who ran a muckraking rag that was virulently anti-Semitic, but also uh, was exposing corruption in the city of Minneapolis. The city of Minneapolis used its uh, laws at the time to uh, exercise what we call prior restraint to keep the publication from publishing. So not even pun- uh, punishing after the fact, but you know, basically putting the guy out of business. And in near versus Minnesota, the Supreme Court ruled that Jay Neer, unsavory character, though he was, uh, was right. And, and so that that's, you know, heartening for those of us who are journalists that there's a member on the court who uh, feels that way. And also, uh, it's a personal thing for him as well. He was a journalist in college. He was editor of the Carltonian in Northfield. And his wife, uh, Jane Moore, has been a journalist for a number of years. So uh, he says that First Amendment issues are, are really near and dear to his heart. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, he is the most recent appointee of Governor Tim Walls on the state Supreme Court. And, yeah, kind of uh, liking some of his background now that you're uh, bringing up uh, a little bit more about this new guy on the Supreme Court, Gordon Moore. Another interesting thing I'd like to bring up on him is that one of his judicial heroes is, or at least the one he mentioned, was David Souter of the U.S. Supreme Court, a conservative justice. Um, He liked him because of his uh, moderation pragmatism, reasonable approach, uh, and sense of decency. So that's interesting, too. And that was part one of my interview with Kevin Featherly of Minnesota Lawyer. Coming up in part two on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about this custody dispute between a dog named Oliver that's made its way all the way to the state Supreme Court. It's really interesting to follow along because if you think about it and you have a custody dispute over a pet, well, how does that get resolved? We'll talk about that next. Back on AM 950, Progressive Voice of Minnesota, Friday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Now let's get to part two of my conversation now with Kevin Featherly, as we're going to be talking about how the court system is looking to resolve a custody dispute over a pet. It's really interesting, so I'll go ahead and get right back into the interview with Kevin now. I want to talk about with you, and that's this idea of custody disputes for pets. For There are 
Well, cats and dogs, that of course are, well, you have to figure out who gets possession of them when someone gets divorced. And we have a couple of cases working their way through the court system. Uh, We have one case involving a custody dispute over a cat that I believe is currently in the lower courts. And then a case involving a dog, a 12-year-old mixed pooch, which is at the state Supreme Court right now. So uh, which one do you want to start with right here? Should we go with the cats or the dogs and talk about that case? Well... If I said I wanted to to go with the case of Oliver first, we'd be confused because, oddly enough, both the cat and the dog are named Oliver. you got to be kidding me, really. That I is, am not kidding. That is nuts. That is absolutely true. Well, not to make you yeah, choose so between... Let's talk, about, let's talk about the pooch first, because he came... Well, well, let's talk about the cat first, because the pooch is really the sort of the... The, oddly, the meatier and, and more uh, sort of pressing issue, that's the one before the Supreme Court. So if we talk about the kitty uh, case, that, that, one's, uh, that one is really, as I put it in my news story, more purely a cat fight over the possession of, of a pet. And, you know, that really is just uh, somebody decided that that one involved a woman who um, had an unhealthy cat. She, she adopted two cats at once. They were litter mates. Um, one of them turned out to be sick and they thought it had diabetes and she felt that she wasn't sure she was going to be able to take care of this cat. She wasn't sure she'd be able to afford its care. And she was afraid that, uh, she might have to euthanize it. So she tried to return it to the shelter from which she got it. They took, they turned her down. And so they, uh, referred her to, uh, this other woman who was actually experienced. She's a cat shelter rescue place, and she's had experience dealing with cats that suffer from diabetes. So um, the woman who took her took care of her for uh, four months. The, 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 the one who owned her initially was in contact, wanted to visit, was pressing her, when am I going to get my cat back? And ultimately, the, the woman who ran the shelter, the rescue, said, I'm not giving you your cat back. Uh, that was... Even though I had said I was going to do that, it was all premised on the idea that the cat would be in remission and my judgment that you'd be able to take care of the cat and the cat's not in remission and I don't think you can do it. So that wound up in the courts. It started out in conciliation court, uh, went to district court, got kicked upstairs to the court of appeals. Um, the district court ruled in favor of the woman who initially owned the cat and took it to the, to the rescue. She said, oh, it's, it, they said it's her cat. The court of appeals, uh, so, oh no no I'm I'm sorry I'm just I'm describing the <laughs> Supreme Court story. Um, the Court of Appeals just remanded it back to the District Court, uh, saying, "Well, there are things about this that we think you're right. There are things about this that we think are wrong. Uh, we particularly need you to go back and look at this issue because of, of <laughs> defamation, because that was raised as part of the case. But all in all, that's really just a, a case about who gets to keep the kitty." Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was fairly simple, despite some of the nuances. The other one is the dog case, yeah. which is a you know the reason the, the Supreme Court accepted this case is because there's a hole in case law on a concept known as tangible personal property. Um, it's not really subtle law how you deal with that. Now, tangible personal property is is uh, things like abandoned, for instance, cars or abandoned other other kinds of personal property. I think real estate sort of sits to the side of this, but a dog, for instance, and they, this dog had been, you could argue, abandoned. Uh, this woman had the dog, kept it for years, 
and actually she had two dogs and kept both of them for years, had to turn them over to her dad because she was going to study in college in California, couldn't take the dogs with her. So the dad had them for a while. Dad decides he can't deal with them anymore. So they wound up getting turned over to this woman, the student's ex-boyfriend. Well, he's taking care of them for a while. The woman comes back, takes one of the dogs. Hmm. This is in 2016, goes back to California, leaves the other one behind because she doesn't want to put Oliver. We're again talking about Oliver. Doesn't want to put him in the in the uh, baggage hold of the of the airplane. So Oliver stays back with the boyfriend for another year or so. Um, girlfriend comes back a year later. This time she wants to visit the dog, and she ostensibly wants to retrieve him and take him home. And the and the guy saying, "No, you're not going to take this dog. I've had him for years." And so that essentially becomes a question of abandoned property. Mm-hmm. The court is trying to figure out. Uh, sort of some nuances between case law, which doesn't really answer these questions real well, and statute, which does, but is somewhat um, nuanced and and a little bit vague on how these things operate and, and who should get the dog in this case. But what they really care about isn't the dog at all, really. They care about this issue of tangible property and how best to answer a question, a legal dispute over tangible property. So this case is going to be precedential and it's going to have ramifications that go well beyond just, you know, poor old Oliver. Yeah, exactly. Because as you're bringing up, let's say you have tangible property. And I know there's pet owners out there thinking, my dog's not tangible property. It's a person in my family. But we're talking about this from a legal perspective. And that's what a dog or a cat is defined as. And think about this even beyond a dog or a cat. Let's say, I don't know, I can't come up with a good example, a car, a TV or something like that. If you abandon that. Abandon property. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. Abandoned property. That's what exactly. Yeah, it's abandoned property. And what do you do with that? If you let's say you run into a situation where you know what, I'm going to leave my car with my boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever or neighbor friend whoever for a couple of years, you're going to come back and say, oh, you know what, I want my car back now. Well, if you've abandoned that, well, what's the law on that? If you've not had that for a few years, even if let's say the title is in your name, it's it's very very complicated as I think this through because even if I'm going with the car example. Even if the title's in your name, if you've abandoned the car for several years and want it back, well, do you still have title of the car? It's a very, very complicated question as it applies not only to pets, but really any sort of tangible property. Yeah, and, and the the dispute is really over, in statute it says that to reclaim that property, you have to give, uh, you have to give 30 days notice to keep the property. If you, if you have the property, it's been abandoned to your care or just to your possession, you have to, according to statute, give uh, somebody 30 days notice that you intend to keep it, and then they can either challenge it or come say, okay, well, I meant to keep it, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I left this in your garage for all this time. Um, and But the other side is saying, well, no, that statute doesn't really matter because according to case law, uh, if it's abandoned for a certain amount of time, it's mine. And so they're trying to figure out what, which, which guides, whether it's the case law, which sort of suggests that, that you can keep it if you've left them laying there too long, or if you have to give somebody the opportunity to retrieve it and under what conditions you would have to give that notice and, you know, how to challenge that notice effectively. 
So, so those are the issues. So currently, yeah, in statute, it does say you have to give that 30-day notice if you intend on keeping possession of something that was given to you that no one's retrieved. You have to give that notice 30 days, like you said, and the other party can either accept that or challenge it. But you said the case law kind of conflicts with this. So it, really the judges are kind of ruling on which takes precedent in this case, the case law like uh, saying case too much right there, the case law or the statute. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, wouldn't statute hold precedent over that, or is it more complicated than I'm uh, thinking about it right now? Well, there's certainly Marshall Tannock, the attorney for, for the the guy who wants to keep the dog, would argue that, you know, case law m- m- it sort of takes precedent, you know. he uh, Whereas the other guy says that, and the other phrase for that is common law, case law, common law. The other guy says because the statute exists, there's nothing left of the common law. The common law is pointless. It doesn't really matter, making the argument that you just made. Mm-hmm. There's also the issue of the word may being in the statute. What does may mean? It doesn't say shall, may, you can, but you don't have to give the fair you know, It's all that kind of stuff that they're trying to figure out. So, so back up, where is the word may in the statute that's kind of throwing things off as well? Just to refresh my Well, mind. let me see. Um, I'm not looking at the statute at the moment, but uh, I'm looking for the word may in here. Yeah, it says, uh, this is section 3.4, for those keeping score, 3.4.5.75, it doesn't, it, it says that the law is written permissive terms offering that uh, ownership of abandoned property may be changed according to directions set out in the rest of the statute, which oh. does include the 30-day notice. So it may be changed, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's very arcane, and if your listeners are still with us, I, I want to award them all a virtual Cupid doll. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with them, too, and I love that term. <laughs> Who in a law puts the word may in there? I mean, you can't really put that in a law. It's one way or another. You can't really have gray area like that. I'm not sure who wrote that back Boy. then, but, yeah, may is not the term you necessarily I think you'll want. find that word, and you'll find that word repeatedly in statute, I think. May yeah, and that just uh, le- I guess that's uh, how the court makes their uh, makes their cases by having all sorts of these uh, yeah weird disputes in there where you have the word may and you have all sorts of gray area. So yeah, the court is hearing just this. Keeps lawyers in business. Yeah, it keeps lawyers in business. That's where I was going with going with that as well on this. So eventually, it sounds like the Supreme Court is going to rule on this, and as you said, it could set some pretty significant precedent once they. Uh, do come up with their ruling in terms of uh, how they want to go with old Oliver here and uh, who's going to get possession of him. No matter how it goes, we're all rooting for Oliver, mm-hmm. either the canine or feline edition. Yeah, the canine or the feline. Yeah, you, you feel bad for the pets in those situations, but uh, they're getting caught up in the uh, old world of human law, which pets don't understand and oftentimes doesn't benefit them. So we'll have to follow along with that case. Hey, that's Kevin. That's true. I took note in one of my stories to say that Oliver was not available for comment. Oliver, yeah, his comment was woof or something like that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is Kevin Featherly, capital reporter for Minnesota Lawyer, uh, M-I-N-N-Lawyer.com. Also follow him on Twitter at Kevin Featherly for the latest on Minnesota politics and interesting uh, court cases that work their way through Minnesota. Kevin, as always, enjoy our conversations, and I'll definitely be following along with what happens with both the cat and dog version of Oliver. Thanks again for the time today.
We'll see you later. Hey, and before I go, want to remind you that you can get an AM950 calendar. We have printed some special calendars for the year 2021 that feature photos Matt McNeil took on his nature hikes and also feature important dates in both AM950 and progressive political history. It's a really cool, really unique calendar, and you can get it here at AM950. All you got to do is become a new member who makes a monthly $25 donation or a brand new one-time $50 donation. Find a lot more details about that over at am950radio.com. These calendars are super cool, so hopefully you can make a contribution and get one of those 2021 AM950 calendars. Find more info over at am950radio.com. All right, that's all the time I got for me today. Matt McNeil is up next. <laughs> 